0: Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC.
1: Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash business gold card.
2: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway.
0: And I'm Joe Weisenthal.
2: So, Joe, you know there's a very, very important date coming up.
0: Mm, What is it?
2: Uh, I'll give you a hint. It's in October.
0: Oh, right. Of course. Uh, Major, major deadline for the trade tariffs. It took me a second. I'm sorry.
2: Uh, Yes, those are always happening. But there's a date that's even more important. And it's actually really important for the U.S.-China trade war. But it's October 1st. And that is the uh, National Day of the People's Republic of China. And this year, it's even more important than usual because it's the 70th anniversary of the founding of the PRC.
0: Ah, okay, that that I didn't realize.
2: Okay. And this tends to be a sort of politically sensitive date for the Chinese authorities. It usually comes with a big military parade and they seed the clouds to uh, a couple days before to make sure that the skies are blue. And it's a big, huge holiday, but it's also a chance for the authorities to sort of evaluate or more likely um, sort of crow about everything they've done to improve China, including the economy. I like how you just sort
0: of casually throw in there that they affect the weather for the day.
2: Yeah, it's really interesting. Everyone knows it's going to be good weather on October 1st.
0: That's amazing.
2: So I thought in connection with the October 1st date, we could talk about how far China has or hasn't come when it it comes to the goal of rebalancing their economy.
0: Right. And this is something that people have been talking about for a long time because people look at the Chinese economy and they see, at least on the surface, all kinds of crazy things going on. There's very uh, historically, there's been you know, extreme fluctuations in asset prices, uh, real estate prices, claims of real estate bubbles, an economy extremely geared towards investment and so forth. And so people look at an economy that's grown extraordinarily well, that's brought all kinds of wealth. To people over the last uh, several decades, going from one of the poorest countries in the world to uh, you know building up this significant middle class, but they still see extraordinary uh, imbalances and skewed forces uh, domestically.
2: That's right, and the big one is of course the the imbalance between an investment driven economy on the way to becoming more of a consumption driven economy. That's the big one, right? And to talk about this, we we really have the perfect person. Uh, our our guest for today is Michael Pettis. He's finance professor over at Peking University and also senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment. Uh, he's also a former banker and a trader and has been watching exactly this and writing about it for a very, very long time. So we're very happy to have Michael on the show today.
0: I can't wait. I've been uh, I've been wanting us to have a uh, podcast with an episode with Michael for a long time. So really looking forward to jumping into this one.
2: Yeah, no pressure. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. So maybe just to begin with, we we could talk a little bit about what we mean when we talk about an investment-driven economy versus a consumption-driven economy. What does that actually mean, and how does it pertain to the case of
1: China? An investment-driven economy can also be thought of as a savings-driven economy. And China is not the only country that's followed this growth model. Uh, At least two dozen countries have since the Second World War. And you could argue that this model was more or less invented in the 1930s in in the Soviet Union. But basically, in a consumption-driven economy, and the classic case is probably the United States in the 19th century, um, you had very high wage levels. It was high wages that drove high levels of consumption, which then drove high levels of investment to serve those consumption needs. And it also drove productivity growth and, uh, and a bunch of other things. In in the savings economy, what you do is you force up the savings rate, uh, which is usually a good thing to do in a developing country because developing countries tend to have insufficient investment, and they tend to have insufficient investment because they have insufficient domestic savings. So you force up the savings rate in order to increase the amount of savings that are available for domestic investment, and you can get very, very rapid growth uh, as long as continue to be underinvested and that's really the problem in China. In the 1980s, China had gone through five decades of Maoism, and civil War and anti-Japanese war, and it was hugely underinvested for its level of development for its for its, the, its ability to absorb investment productively. And so a model that really focused on pushing up investment as rapidly as possible was the right model. And for that, you have to push up the savings rate. And here's where I think there's a huge amount of uh, misconception about China. China, as everyone knows, has the highest savings rate in the world, but that's not a cultural propensity to save. It's got nothing to do with what households want to do. China has the highest savings rate in the world because it has the lowest household share of GDP. In other words... They produce $100 of GDP, and their total compensation is roughly $50. And so, of course, their consumption is less than that. That's why China has such a low consumption share and such a high uh, savings share. Now, this is a great model when you have significant amount of investment that you need to do, when you're a severely underinvested economy, which China was in the 1980s and 1990s. But at some point, perhaps at the end of the 90s or beginning of the 2000s, China reached the level of investment that it could productively absorb. And in that case, what it should have done is it should have switched this growth model towards more of a consumption-driven growth model. And that's what it's been trying to do. But the, the, the important point to remember is that if you want the consumption share of GDP to grow, then you've got to get the household income share to grow. And if you want the household income share to grow, you've got to reduce someone else's share. And that's why it's such a politically difficult uh, problem for China.
0: So, Michael, you've been writing about this uh, problem or this challenge for China for several years. And I went back, I was over the weekend doing some prep reading your book from 2013. You're like, it's pretty clear that in the coming years, they're reaching the absolute limits to the existing investment-driven model. They have to make the change now because if they don't make it gradually, it's going to be a painful adjustment eventually. Explain to us the sort of specific mechanism by which the investment-driven growth model has to come to an end, why it can't last forever, why it, uh, why it must uh, run into a wall. And then since then, like in recent years and before the trade war, so before we get to like the sort of immediate stuff, how has China done with its domestic rebalancing, in your view?
1: The problem with this model is that when you have significant amounts of productive investment that you need to do, and the way it works is you borrow $100, you invest in building a factory or building a road and building a bridge. That increases the value of the economy by $110, Right. so you're fine. Your debt's going up, but your, your uh, debt burden is actually going down. That's healthy growth. But when you reach the point at which you can no longer absorb all of this investment productively, so again, you borrow $100, you build something, but this something only creates uh, $20 worth of value for the economy. Now you have $100 of additional debt, but only $20 of additional debt servicing capacity. So now your debt burden is growing. And that's, you know, you can argue it's been, this has been the case for the last 10 years, for the last 20 years, whatever. It's certainly been the case. And that's why China's debt burden has exploded to becoming among the highest we've ever seen for a developing country.
2: What do we think about China's debt burden at the moment? Because we've had China bears warning about it for, I mean, over a decade at this point. And yet, even though we, we, we see these concerns and we see the authorities, you know, occasionally try to reduce credit in the wider economy, um, they, they tend to give up after a couple of years. And if the economy starts to slow, they just ramp up uh, lending again. So, Is this something that can keep going for for a while longer?
1: It probably can for another two or three years. Now, there have been two types of China bears warning about the debt. I would say a lot of them have looked at the debt problem and said, uh, if debt continues growing, China will have a debt crisis. I don't think that's what the history tells us. Debt crisis is one of the ways you resolve a debt problem. But another way you resolve it or fail to resolve it is through a really long, slow adjustment. So, for example, Japan after 1990 never had a debt crisis. I think that's the more likely outcome in China because the debt crisis is really a balance sheet problem, It's not a debt problem. And in China, as long as the system is closed and the regulators very powerful, um, they can always restructure liabilities, in which case you'll never have a debt crisis. But that doesn't mean you won't have a debt problem. As the debt level grows, the debt itself becomes a constraint on, on future growth, and the problem is you can only continue growing as long as the debt continues growing even more quickly. Now, we don't know where the limit to debt capacity is, but we certainly don't want to find out. And I think in Beijing, there's a growing sense that wherever that limit is, we're getting awfully close to it. So we've started to see in the last two years a much more serious attitude towards trying to rein in debt. They haven't done so. That continues to grow much more faster than any measure of debt servicing capacity, but at least it's improving.
0: The Chinese investment-led growth model has been built on several foundations which keep household uh, household spending, household consumption, household income unnaturally low. Interest rates are set artificially low, punishing or hurting savers. Savers don't have very good investment opportunities. Worker rights aren't particularly strong. There are other things built into the system that so essentially create a lot of household precarity and drive the savings rate up. Has China done anything structural in the last few years to make a meaningful change towards this domestic rebalancing in your view?
1: You know, not really. There has been some improvement. If you look at the um, the consumption share of GDP, It's risen pretty significantly in the last four or five years, but there are two things that account for almost all of that growth. The first thing is just that GDP has dropped. The growth in GDP has dropped significantly, so the consumption share, just as a matter of arithmetic, gets larger and larger. The second thing is, you know, there's two ways you can increase the consumption share of GDP for any country, not just for China. One way is to increase household debt. The other way is to increase the household income share of GDP. Now, four or five years ago, China had very little household debt. And since then, it's really exploded. But that's not sustainable, because if you're trying to solve for a debt problem, obviously additional debt isn't the way you're going to fix the problem. So we're probably reaching a limit there. What they really have to do is do the transfers. But when you go through all of the mechanics, ultimately... They have to transfer wealth from local governments and local elites to the household sector. And there's, you know, a dozen different ways you can do it, and they do have to do them all. But the problem is a political problem, and that is the local governments and the local elites very, very strongly resist these wealth transfers.
2: Well, I wanted to press you on this issue, and you mentioned this already, but one thing you often hear is that The Chinese are culturally prone to excess savings, possibly because of recent history where there was a lot of turmoil in the country, possibly because of a lack of social safety net in China. So are there political solutions to this problem? And what could those realistically actually be?
1: Well, the key is increasing the household share of GDP. One of the ways of doing so, of course, is strengthening the social safety net, although it depends on how you pay for it. So if you strengthen the social safety net and pay for it by borrowing at negative real rates from the household sector, then what you're doing is you are, uh, you know, with one hand, you're giving them additional income in the form of a social safety net, and with the other hand, you're taking it away from them in the form of a negative return on their savings. The key is that it has to be funded by transfers from the household sector. Let me, let me give a classic case of how this could happen. Very unlikely, because it's politically quite difficult. But as you know, in China, you have what's called the hukou system, which means that uh, as a Chinese, you're only allowed to live and work in the area for which you have a permit called the hukou. So when you think about all these uh, migrant workers in, in, say, in Beijing, most of them here are technically illegal. Now, they're allowed to work here, but the problem is They have a limited ability to access city services, schooling, uh, medical treatment. They have limited standing in law if they ever get into a conflict with their employers, etc. So imagine that you eliminate the hukou overnight. Immediately, migrant workers would be richer because they would now have full access to city services. Also, immediately, the city would be poorer because it now has to cover all of these services. This would be a classic transfer mechanism, and it's something the Chinese have been talking about for many years. It's just too politically difficult to pull it off.
0: Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors LLC. So let's uh, fast forward to the present day, because obviously, and this is something you've talked about in your writing, is that you know the the growth model can continue uh, even with all the debt, even with all the domestic imbalances. So long as there's a significant amount of foreign demand for Chinese goods and as long as someone is out there buying and for a long time, really for the whole world, but for China in particular, the U.S. has been a major contributor of uh, demand for goods of all all sorts. And we see that now running into uh, an obvious problem, which is President Trump and the trade war and this sort of general feeling maybe in the U.S. that the current system is Gone on too far, and we don't want to be the the uh, demand creator of last resort for the Chinese economy. Right? How is that contributing to what we're seeing domestically? I mean, we know the data for China has not been particularly good. Some talk recently about giving up on the six uh, percent GDP growth goal. Talk to us about how you know there's all this all these challenges, and how the additional challenge of the U.S. no no longer wanting to play its. Uh, the role it has been for the last uh, few decades how that is affecting things
1: everything that china produces everything that any country produces has to be absorbed in one of three ways it's either consumed domestically or it's invested domestically or it's consumed or invested abroad which is through the uh, through the trade surplus so the total uh, uh, total gdp that's produced in china goes into one of those three things now, the consumption share, as we discussed, is very, very low. So much of it goes into investment and the trade surplus. Investment we want to bring down as quickly as possible because China is investing primarily in stuff that's not productive. So that just represents a growth in the debt. Um, but here's the problem. If the U.S. were to put in constraints that forced the Chinese trade surplus to contract, then China either has to accept lower growth because now it can't sell everything that it's producing, so it has to close down factories and fire workers, or it has to make up for that growth in some other way. And the only other way it can make up for that growth is by increasing investment even further, which means increasing the debt burden even more quickly. That's why the trade conflict is so important for China. It sort of, it sort of mediates the pace at which they can bring down investment. And the, the smaller the trade surplus, then the more slowly they're able to bring down investment. And, and that's the big problem. Now, the the overall trade problem, you know, China's not even the worst offender in this case. So Germany and Japan have bigger uh, current account surpluses than China does. And the problem there is really on the capital side. Now, this gets a little bit technical, but what ends up happening, if you have a very, very high savings rate, uh, and, and, and all countries have really high savings rates. Contrary to popular opinion, they don't have high savings rates because there are countries that value thrift. The Germans aren't particularly uh, more thrifty than other Europeans. They have high savings rates because the household share of GDP is low, and the share uh, uh, controlled by businesses or by the government or by the wealthy is quite high. So those are high-saving entities. You take money away from a low-saving, high-consuming part of the economy and give it to a high-saving, low-consuming part of the economy, your savings rate automatically goes up. Now, if your savings exceeds your investments, then you have to export the excess savings, which is just the flip side of running a current account or a trade surplus. So countries with excess savings have to export those savings somewhere. Trade theory tells us that they export them to developing countries that need the savings. But, of course, we know that's nonsense. Most of it goes to wealthy countries that don't need the savings, for example, the U.S. And as a result, because the U.S. is, is forced to absorb foreign capital that's, uh, that's exported to the U.S., then it must also run the corresponding uh, um, current account or trade deficit. Now, it's a little pedantic, but the point of all of that is to suggest that the reason the U.S. runs a trade deficit is because it runs a capital account surplus over which it has no control. If that's the case, then putting tariffs on Chinese goods is worse than useless. It has no impact at all. Hmm. It will reduce the U.S. deficit with China. But if Chinese savings continue to pour into the U.S., China will continue to run a surplus, and the U.S. will continue to run a deficit, just not with each other. The only impact the tariffs have is to shift trade around. They don't really affect the overall surplus of China or the overall deficit of the United States. And you can see that in the data. The U.S. deficit with China has gone down. The U.S. deficit with the rest of the world has gone up by even more. Uh, exactly as you would expect.
2: Hmm. So, just to be clear, is the suggestion here that the tra- the trade war between the U.S. and China is basically sort of an excess money problem, and the U.S. is maybe indirectly trying to shrink these capital inflows by targeting Chinese goods because that's one way that it could possibly alter those inflows.
1: Yes, it's just the wrong way of doing it, but but that's exactly right. So in a country like China has such a high savings rate, and it's not an accident. It's because when you have policies that force the household sector to subsidize manufacturing, then, of course, that means that ultimately the part of production retained by the household sector goes lower and lower. So you can take the case of uh, Germany in 2003-2004, the Hartz Reforms. Basically, the Hartz Reforms represented a transfer of income from German workers to German businesses. The household share went down, profits soared. That's why Germany was so competitive in the international markets, because basically workers subsidized their exports. It's the same thing in China. And that's really what the U.S. has to address, not, the, uh, not, the tar- not through tariffs.
0: So if you're President Trump... Or sorry, if you were advising President Trump, you'd say, don't, uh, you know, forget about all the tariffs and soybeans and all these things. Pressure Xi Jinping to get rid of the uh, hukou system, transfer the domestic wealth of the country to the workers, eliminate this excess savings that causes all the uh, excess money to come to the U.S. and actually put money in the hands of people who might uh, over time buy stuff from
1: the U.S. Absolutely. Of course, the U.S. can't really go in and say right, that. Right,
0: right. No, I know, just uh, exaggerating. But that's sort of like the contours here, which is that... exactly. And I have to admit, just uh, I, I, I know like you have a book coming out um, next year with uh, Matt Klein, who's at Barron's. And I remember reading this, I think a year ago, he had a really good column, sort of making this point, which is that the real way for the U.S. to make progress on the trade war would be for essentially the U.S. to pressure a uh, that domestic realignment that you've been talking about so that more of the uh, money in China is in the hands of consumers as opposed to people with a lot of extra cash to put somewhere.
1: Exactly right. You know, when when the Chinese sell us something for $100, that's a $100 flow from, from the, the U.S. to China. Ideally, we want that money to flow back. Right in the form of imports of goods. It will flow back, but it typically flows back in the form of imports of capital. So the Chinese will buy U.S. treasury bonds rather than U.S. manufacturing equipment. And that's purely caused because of the way income is distributed in China. Um, Now, the only way the U.S. can really pressure China and Germany and Japan and the rest of them to fix their domestic problems is by somehow refusing to allow that capital to flow into the U.S., perhaps by taxing it, perhaps by quotas, I don't know. But that's really the kind of pressure that the U.S. should be able to exert.
2: Right. So this is something that keeps coming up. And just to play devil's advocate for a second can you walk us through both the positives and the negatives of having a lot of foreign money basically pour into the U.S.? Because on the one hand, clearly it affects employment through manufacturing. But on the other hand, it does lower the U.S.'s funding costs and, you know, helps people maybe spend more than they would otherwise. So there seem to be pros and cons. So Could you just walk us through them and and how you see it net-net as a positive or a negative?
1: Yeah, so suppose the rest of the world exports $100 to the U.S. You know, we start from, from balanced payments, and then for whatever reason, their savings go up and they export $100 to the U.S. That means in the U.S., we will have a $100 capital account uh, surplus, and we must have a $100 uh, current account deficit. So, how do we get the deficit? Well, if the U.S. were a developing country, then, uh, for example, the way it was in the 19th century, then investment in the U.S., there would be huge investment needs that would be constrained by the lack of domestic savings. In that case, foreign money coming into the U.S. would be a good thing. It would cause American investment to go up. That's exactly what happened in the 19th century when the U.S. depended very heavily on British capital for its domestic investment. But the U.S. isn't a developing country anymore. Uh, now we have a different problem. We have too much capital. Interest rates are at historic, uh, historically low levels. American businesses have huge hordes of cash on their balance sheet, which they're unable to invest. So they, they do stock buybacks and things like that. Uh, so if you increase the amount of, um, of foreign savings and increase the amount of capital in the U.S. by $100, will U.S. investment go up? Well, clearly it doesn't. And we have evidence from other countries. So, for example, again, Germany after 2003, 2004, when their savings went up and the cost of capital declined, their investment didn't go up. It actually went down. And I think that reflects the fact that we're no longer living in a capital-constrained world. We have even negative interest rates. To drive down the American savings rate, either you increase unemployment or you increase household debt or you increase the fiscal deficit. None of those are good things, obviously. So that's why, for the US, running a current account deficit and a capital account surplus is a real problem. And so that's why I think it does make sense for the Trump administration, and Bernie Sanders said the same thing, and and Elizabeth Warren has said the same thing, for them to address the current account deficit. It's just that they're addressing it the wrong way.
0: Yeah. I thought it was pretty striking that uh, during one of the recent Democratic uh, debates, the moderator asked the candidates who would uh, immediately reverse uh, Trump's tariffs on China, and none of them raised their hands. And so, even to your point, maybe that's not the right—that's uh, not the right approach. There is this political alignment in the U.S. between Trump and the Democrats, where none of them want to go back to the old relationship with. China right away. It's no one thinks it's as simple as just reversing Trumpism and that everything's fine. And I know, again, uh, I know you have an upcoming book sort of exploring this dimension or the sort of the connection between class warfare and trade warfare, domestic inequality and trade wars, regardless of whether Trump is pursuing the right approach. Everything that you've laid out and what all of our political leaders seem to intuit is that there really was something Truly broken about the the existing or the uh, the old relationship.
1: Absolutely, it's the imbalances were were much higher than 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 trade theory would permit. They lasted much longer than trade theory would permit. They were created by significant distortions. And you mentioned the book that Matt Klein and I are are, are publishing uh, sometime. I think it may. And and in in the book, what we try to argue is that. What looks like a conflict between nations is really a conflict between economic sectors. The same groups in China and in the U.S. or in Germany and in Spain benefited from the imbalances and the same groups paid the cost of the imbalances.
2: Who's the biggest culprit when it comes to economic sectors? You mentioned, uh, both in the case of the U.S. and China, this idea of, of corporates having a, a large size of national wealth. So I'm, I'm just wondering, is, is there one particular entity that you would say is worse than others?
1: Well, you know, I spent most of my career on Wall Street, so I hate to say this. But the fact is, the global banks benefit tremendously from this system, from these international capital flows. Large, uh, large businesses that are easily able to move their operations around benefit from it. Small producers and workers are the are, are, and household savers are ultimately the ones that pay for this system.
0: Uh, before we go and we have to wrap it up, Shirley, I want to just turn to one other thing. It's not directly related to this. But it touches on all this stuff, of course. But these days, there's a tremendous amount of discussion and political pressure on Germany specifically to uh, expand, uh, engage in fiscal expansion. That When people look at the imbalances in the world right now, obviously, the US-China trade relationship is all its issues, but that there's this sort of obvious issue in Europe where the richest country uh, really should be spending a lot more, and they have this... uh, you know, obsession with balanced budgets doesn't make any sense. And um, How big of a deal, like, how big of a problem is uh, German fiscal rectitude right now? And how, uh, what could happen if, uh, if they don't do something to uh, address their own imbalances?
1: It's, it's a huge problem because, you know, the, the problem that we have globally is a demand side problem. We have insufficient demand. And one of the reasons we have such weak demand is because thanks to income inequality and also thanks to mercantilism, the consuming part of the world is too small. So there is insufficient consumption unless it's boosted by debt, which of course is unsustainable and risky. And with that insufficient consumption, there's insufficient business investment to serve that consumption. When Germany says that the solution for the world is for everyone to be like us, that's a huge problem because what that means is that everyone should continue lower wages in order to become more competitive. But if we all lower wages to become more competitive, we just get poor. We run into the problem of the 1930s, which the then um, uh, uh, governor of the Fed, a brilliant man by the name of Mariner Eccles, explained it. He said that as you keep pushing down workers' wages in order to benefit the wealthy, you're not even benefiting the wealthy because if workers are unable to consume the things that the wealthy produce, then everyone gets caught in this downward spiral. And that's sort of what Germany forced onto the rest of Europe. So I think that they're going to have to uh, uh, change their fiscal rectitude uh, because I don't think they really have a choice. Once the world is unable to absorb all of Germany's excess production, And it's huge, it's about nine or ten percent of GDP, then what can Germany do? If it is unable to consume it domestically, then it must stop producing it, and stopping producing it means closing down factories and firing workers, et cetera, et cetera. So ultimately I don't think they'll do that. I don't think I think they're smart enough to recognize that they have to engage in domestic spending and they will. But they'll only do it when they're forced to, I think.
2: So before we go, one of our listeners said that we absolutely have to ask you the following question. So I'm going to try to tie it into some of the topics that we've been discussing. But when you view China's economy, are you confident that the rebalancing is going to happen? Uh, and in what time frame do you think it might happen? And also, are you sort of positive about the direction over Of the overall China economy, and when you do some of the other stuff that you do in Beijing, which is uh, you know a music label, uh, you're involved in the the music scene over there. And I think at one point you ran a club. I'm I'm not sure if it's still open or not. No,
1: it's not. But yes,
2: what does that tell you about the direction of the Chinese economy?
1: Well, the question is, will rebalancing happen? Is is very obvious. Yes, it has to happen, and it will happen. One thing. Historically, as we know, that all great imbalances eventually reverse. The question is, how does it reverse? It could reverse in the form of a crisis. So, for example, if you look at the U.S. in the early 1930s, in the 1920s, the U.S. had many of the same problems that China did. And the way it rebalanced in the 1930s was in the first three years of the decade, GDP contracted by something like 35 percent, household income contracted by roughly half that, incredibly painful, but it rebalanced. Another way of rebalancing is the way the Japanese did. After 1990, they also have the same imbalances that China does. Nowhere near as severe, but the same imbalances. So they rebalanced too, but they rebalanced in the form of two lost decades of stagnant GDP growth. Those are basically the models that the world gives us. Those are the two ways you rebalance. And my guess is that China will rebalance the Japanese way in a very long, drawn-out rebalancing. Now, for China, the sooner they start that process, the better, which basically means the more rapidly GDP growth drops, the better for China. And I have to say, in the last few months, I've been pretty impressed that they haven't done what they always do when growth slows, and that is to panic and step on the accelerator. They haven't done that, and growth is slowing pretty sharply. I just met with one of my former students who's very well plugged in, and he thinks it's possible we may even see months of 5.8% growth this year. That, I think, would be a really good sign, because that means that China is, is really serious about getting its debt under control. The problem is that I think they think debt is under control somewhere around 45 to 5%. Whereas I think it's, it's got to go below 3% before it gets under control. But we'll see. We'll see what happens.
2: And what about the music scene? What does that tell you about the future of China?
1: There's been good and bad things, but one of, the, one of the most exciting things about being in China, and it's something that I think a lot of people miss because they're looking for the wrong signals, and that is there's this incredibly buoyant cultural explosion taking place among the urban young in China. And music is at the center of it, but it's not the only part of it. You see it in fashion, you see it in art, you see it in comics, you see it in movies, lots of different things. It's really quite impressive what's happening here. But I don't think that should be a surprise. Chinese incomes have have soared in the last 20 to 30 years. And China has gone from a country that is primarily rural to one that is primarily urban. And we've never seen anything take place at this speed before. So we don't really know what the result is going to be, but it's probably a safe bet that it's going to be culturally extremely interesting and something very vibrant.
2: All right, Michael Pettis, we're going to have to have you come back on just to talk about music for an episode, I think.
1: (laughs) I'd love to.
0: That was great. Thank you so much, Michael. That was, I learned so much. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks very much. I hope that was useful.
2: So I love that conversation and I love that we're having it at a sort of key political date in the Chinese calendar, because I think the policy is so important to all of this, right?
0: Absolutely. I I really like that conversation. And the way Michael explains things is so clear because a lot of this type of analysis a lot of which is sort of based on seemingly accounting identities, the sort of uh, axiomatic relationship between savings, investment, and the current account. It can seem like it can be, I always have a slightly hard time keeping these relationships in my head exactly like what moves up and so what therefore then has to go down. And I just think uh, Michael did such a clear job explaining it and then explaining how these things have real world uh, ramifications.
2: Yeah. And the other thing that seems to be coming through uh, on our episodes recently is the notion that there is some sort of problem of imbalances with too much money flowing into the US. We talked about it with David Beckworth most recently, and Michael brought it up yet again. And people seem to be moving towards a consensus that there is an issue here. They just disagree on how exactly to fix it.
0: And it's one of those things that to the average person, they would have a really hard time wrapping their head around why that's a problem. So it's like, oh, okay, China is investing all this money, all this ex- exporting, all this capital to the US. I think intuitively to a lot of people it's like, oh, that's a good thing. Why not have people bring their money here? But then the way Michael explains it in terms of driving up asset prices, driving up the dollar, et cetera, or uh, causing a uh, loosening of lending standards and that hurts US savings. Uh, you start to actually crystallize what it really means to have capital flow to the U.S. as opposed to demand for our goods. Uh, So I just feel like that was so uh, instructive and just seems to explain so much of what's happened in the economy over the last several decades.
2: Yep, for sure. And we'll have to have him back on to talk about uh, his music label and his club as well. All right. Well. Let's leave it there for now. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway.
0: And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And you should definitely follow our guest on Twitter. He's way underfollowed for how much he knows.
2: Criminally underfollowed.
0: Criminally underfollowed. Michael Pettis. He's at Michael X. Head check him out and be sure to follow our producer on Twitter, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson, as well as the Bloomberg community of podcasts, which is under the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening.
1: business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash business gold card.
0: Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal.
2: And Tracy Alloway.
0: And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about, Money Stuff, the podcast.
2: That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit.
0: You can listen to Money Stuff the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.